Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You could never fit the mold. There was no way to do that because I was too young. I was a woman. There's no Asians in comedy. There's no women in comedy, really. So it was weird. But also I could, in comedy, really embrace my oddness and the fact that it didn't fit into make a place for myself. So that's one of the advantages of being different in comedy. Trying to fit in was just not an option because it was just too jarring for the audience to see me anyway. So I had to convince them that it was going to be okay. Hi, I'm Margaret Cho, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to comedian, actor, musician, advocate, entrepreneur, Margaret Cho. And not just any Margaret Cho, the Margaret Cho. You know, but she wasn't a lawyer or a doctor (laughs) or a scientist. (laughs) No, this is shout out to our pal, Stephen Wakabayashi, who you're going to get to meet very soon on this podcast, who, after we talked to him, hosted the Yellow Glitter podcast, he was kind enough to introduce us to Margaret. And I think it goes without saying that Margaret Cho has just been undeniably someone who's been in our collective conscious as Asian Americans growing up in the 80s. Like, there wasn't anybody. There was like Christy Yamaguchi, Michael Chang, and Margaret Cho for me. I don't know what you (laughs) should. Same. Same. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, in preparing for another guest, Mira Jacob, I discovered Margaret Cho's podcast several months ago, The Margaret Cho, which is the coolest podcast <laughs> ever. And it's a great show. You should absolutely check that out. But more importantly, in her second season of the podcast, she's now calling it Mortal Minority. And along with like some super smart, like really accomplished guests, artists, historians, they unpack not just historic crimes like the 1871 Chinatown massacre, the fortune teller murders, but also kind of how that informs what we're seeing today with AMPI violence. And it's very kind of mission, more mission driven than it's ever been. She's always had race and being an outsider in her work. But yeah, her, her podcast is just amazing. Yeah. And they have the coolest name. I mean, mortal minority. That's, I feel like we should have, we should have thought of that first Roman. <laughs> Yeah, but then I would have like always been talking about like Mortal Kombat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Another great thing about Margaret is I feel like she's so busy. The podcast is just one part of what she's been doing. Her animated film Over the Moon recently got nominated for an Oscar award this year. And it's a film that she created with Sandra Oh, Ken Jung, and John Cho. So she's really still on the circuit quite a bit with many different projects. 
Yeah, and I think by the time this episode airs, she's actually been added to a new original film on Hulu called Sex Appeal. So she's busy. She's a Renaissance woman, and she just she does a lot, and she does it with a purpose and a cause. And you can tell when we kind of got into her early life story. Yeah, I have to say, and I've said this a lot of times whenever we've had stand-up comedians on our show, but it always impresses me how serious they can get because I see them in one way. And to me, Margaret Cho was always the funny person on stage, you know, making fun of herself or just being extra loud or extra different. And she was pretty thoughtful with her responses. And in fact, it's that uniqueness of of who I know of her as a stand-up comedian that I think really helped her success. She talks about how being a comedian allowed her to be different. And in fact, that was embraced as, as she performed on stage. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't, I guess I knew this and I didn't know it, but she got her start really young. And she was, you know, while she grew up in San Francisco, her parents ran a gay bookstore, which she had to explain <laughs> that to me. But like she was traveling the country as a 17 year old. And unlike a lot of the other model Asian Americans, the Michael Changs, the Chrissy Yamaguchis, like being a comedian is being an outsider. So she kind of used that to her advantage. And during her entire career. And she even shares a story about the young artist that she came up with who may or may not have been my favorite person in every Marvel movie ever made. So, you know, there's that. Very cool. She had very cool beginnings and she's an amazing person. And I think you will absolutely love our conversation with Margaret Cho. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Margaret, I have to ask a question that all of us have gotten, but I like to ask our guests. How do you respond when someone says, where are you from? (laughs) I usually say San Francisco because that's where I'm from. And then they always say, no, where are you really from? (laughs) The second and the third version of the question. Where are your parents from? What do you do? What is is your country of origin? And I say, well, my parents are from Korea. So my country of origin is Korea, but I'm actually Chinese. Yeah, you just found that out, right? Yes, I'm Chinese. That was so mind-blowing for me. I know, it's such a mind, it's so (laughs) like, but I think that really we're all Chinese. I think everybody (laughs) is sort of Chinese. (laughs) Because it's like, that's the landmass we're from. Technically, Margaret, we're all African. We're all African. That's true. And then we sort of spread out to different parts of the world. So yeah, we're all from one place, but- the identity that's ethnic, so I don't know, it's not ethnic identity, it's, it's national identity is Korean. That's what it is. How did you discover that you were Chinese? I was on the show Finding Your Roots, and they did, this was a long time ago. So they do your DNA, and they discovered my DNA is all 100% Chinese. Wow. And my parents were like, well, no. <laughs> but I'm like, of course, yes, because. Yes. Well, there's a, there's a hierarchy. And so my wife is Chinese American. Her dad is an auto mechanic. And when my wife decided to buy her first car, we were dating at the time, she bought a Japanese car. And oh my God, the hatred. And as an Indian American, India, Pakistan, we're all together on this side together. <laughs> but back there, man, there's not a lot of love between the countries. No, there's a lot of old wounds, a lot of wars, a lot of really terrible things, a lot of complaints. But here, we're all othered. 
And so we have to stick together. I mean, I think that's really important, but there, I mean, it still exists. There's still in China and Korea and Japan are still at odds. I think that China and Korea less so than Japan. Everybody's mad at Japan. <laughs> and Japan's mad at everybody else. The one thing so I'll it's a say, very hard thing. Yeah. As a proud American, the one thing I will say is I'm so glad that we've lost the mantle of the most annoying tourists now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not going to say who's taken the mantle on, but I've been around and I have an observation. <laughs> I I don't know. It's like the thing about it is that there's still so much arguing around Asia about who's who. And it's very, it disrupts what we're supposed to be doing here or what we yeah, should be yeah. doing here. Yeah. Well, and I want to get into that a little bit, but I guess you're infamous and that is the highest compliment I can give someone. Yeah. Who were you before that? What did little Margaret want to be when she grew up? Did you always? Yeah, I I guess not only what did you want to be, but what did mom and dad want you to be? Well, I think my parents really, they're very white aspirational. So they wanted me to go to an Ivy League school (laughs) and be a scientist, a doctor, a lawyer, maybe something that can be quantified. So either mathematically, scientifically, Something in medicine, because I think our families want us to go into professions where identity is not judged. And so that is the sciences, medicine, law, to some degree. Because the baggage that comes with that profession is an understood good baggage. Yeah, because well, also their experience coming to America was so informed by racism and this kind of very shameful experience that they didn't necessarily expect. Because, you know, you think, oh, well, America's going to be this land of opportunity, the American dream. It's a country of immigrants. And you get here and you're faced with so much intense racism. So my parents came in 1964 to San Francisco. So they experienced so much racism that they were like, we're just going to live in other communities. So we always lived in black neighborhoods, gay neighborhoods. My parents had a gay business. They owned a gay bookstore. They pushed us into... Can I, sorry, can I ask what that means? What is a gay bookstore? A bookstore that sold gay books and had gay employees was in a gay neighborhood. <laughs> That's very progressive for an immigrant family. In the 70s, it's crazy. Yeah. But it's because they were like, we're just, we're othered. So we're going to be with the others. So we'll all be them. But it's so different. I think is because, great. Well, to contrast... And I don't know if it's the Asian, something you were saying on one of your podcasts with one of your guests was, I do think the Asian American experience depends on where in America you grew up. Sharon grew up Mm -hmm. in Chinatown, New York City. I grew up in Alabama. And so for me, it was assimilate, 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 be the model Mm -hmm. minority, don't speak up, don't let them hear the, when the Indian music's blaring, shut the windows. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, I I wonder if there's a difference versus being in this like bigger metropolitan kind of diverse area embrace the other, maybe? I don't know. I think there's more others to embrace. There's more others to dive into. There's more others that are... Well, in San Francisco, it's because the gay community was such a huge part of the city, especially in the 70s, then there was a lot of money there. And there was a very kind of up-and-coming political climate around gay culture, gay life, gay politics. Harvey Milk was on the rise. Yeah, right. It was starting to become this very gay identified city. This is before AIDS. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was almost the height of gay chic. So we had this gay bookstore where Armistead Mopin, who wrote Tales of the City, would do book signings and readings. And we had so employees cool. that were That's like so, so all cool. going to hang out with Harvey Milk and doing his events and, and stuff. So there was this being in the city kind of mindset of, okay, this is actually upwardly mobile, but still othered. Yeah. And where we can fit in, but still be kind of staying in our lane. I feel like we've, I don't know what happened. It's funny that you mentioned it was the seventies and fast forward. I was born in the eighties or late seventies, early eighties, but the Reagan era. And I think that's where the model minority myth started to get, I don't know where it specifically came from, but that's when it started to get marketed more, so to speak. And I feel like we all started to get pulled apart back then, right Mm -hmm. in that moment, post 60s, 70s, Reagan's America, maybe. It just felt like we became more divided across the board. Koreans and Black people, Indians is a whole nother thing, right, to talk about, about Indians in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I wonder what it is. It's like a lot of different things. There was, with Asians in particular, there was the auto industry and Japanese cars. Right. Yeah. That really Mm -hmm. became a major divisive wedge between Asian Americans and quote unquote Americans, white Americans, and sort of like starts in Detroit and bleeds outward. And then you have the Vincent Chin incident where Chinese American man was killed as a hate crime by two out of work auto employees who were acquitted, who were acquitted, who were acquitted, Mm -hmm. but blames a Chinese American for Japanese cars, which Americans were buying. So it's not, it doesn't make any sense. But it's also... But hate doesn't need a reason. Hate just needs an excuse. It just needs an excuse. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's the invisibility of Asians in media and movies and television. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Like, I don't recall really any Asian American or Asian appearances of anybody in mainstream anything. Yeah. Not until pretty recently. I mean, and that's... Go ahead, Robin. You know, you were one of the first, so Margaret. That's worth right. saying. And I want to ask about that era because <laughs> I'm going to date myself and show my ignorance. But dude, it was like Christy Yamaguchi and you. <laughs> like, I love Christy. But no, it's like, that's all. And as an Indian, there were definitely, I don't remember. Balki was an Indian. He was Eastern European. But like, you guys were the only yeah. ones. And yeah. I can only imagine, and this is the post-Bruce Lee era. I can only imagine the kind of meetings you would have with your manager and your agent or the kind of notes you would get back? Like what was being a rising Asian entertainer in a moment when there was no representation? What was, how did you even persevere that? It's hard because I can't do martial arts. <laughs> it's like, well, you could probably be, maybe you'd be a Power Ranger. <laughs> Chun-Li. <laughs> yeah, all, all we have Ming, is awesome. Yoga right, fire. Know, not fair. Right. Not fair. Chun-Li's way cooler. Ming-Na Wen is great. And she's she's really good at martial arts. Well, she's much more physically inclined than I am. I'm not <laughs> physically inclined. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that because I was doing stand-up comedy, that there's a kind of agency that comes with stand-up comedy that makes it really easy to just sort of be an outsider. It's an outsider art form. So it's kind of it kind of made sense and it was okay. Even if I couldn't get parts and things that I could still do stand-up comedy. So there was a reason why people wanted to be in business with me because I could do my own shows and I didn't require production 
behind me to do that. But at the same time, there was just no way to sort of break it. I remember I tried to get an agent one time and it was an agent that represented a friend of mine who was half Filipino and half Irish. And he set me up with- He was a comic as well? He was a comedian. Okay. And he set me up with his agent and his agent said, I'm really sorry, but you're young. You should just have a life. Don't try to do this. Don't try to be in entertainment because I've never seen an Asian person succeed. Wow. He's like, I tried it. I had a client who was really talented and it just didn't work. Sorry. And then I saw him. It was on my TV show and he was representing one of the co-stars. He was so embarrassed. (laughs) So that was good. But it was very heartbreaking at the beginning, but I don't know how. I just didn't care. I also think the younger me... How did you even break into comedy? Because we went from doctor, lawyer, all the traditional expectations of parents. How did you... Harvey Milk at the bookstore, right? Yeah, Yeah. right. I just loved it. I started really young. I started when I was 14 and I, I really loved it. And I had a teacher in high school who signed me up for open mics with my partner. I had a comedy partner at the beginning. It was Sam Rockwell, who is a very famous actor. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And you you can see. My favorite person in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) Come on. He's amazing. dancing alone. The dance moves alone. He's so good. You could see us doing our comedy on YouTube. (laughs) We have these weird clips of us. We're like 14. But then he had to move to New York with his mom. So I stayed stayed in comedy. I loved it. I just loved it. And it was the right thing for me. I don't know why I stayed with it, but I, I knew that it was just my destiny, I guess, but it was really the right thing. Were there ever things as you were coming up, right? As you go from being an MC to a feature, to a headliner, that whole journey traveling the country. Yeah. Do you feel like there were ever moments where you did things to fit in to make the mold when you're in Cincinnati or Dayton or Birmingham or whatever? No, because you could never fit the mold. There was no way to do that because I was too young. I was a woman. There's no Asians in comedy. There's no women in comedy, really. So I was just a weird, the point I was like traveling all over, I was 17, 18. There was no people that young. So it was weird, but also that I could in comedy really embrace my oddness. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I didn't fit in to make a place for myself. So that's one of the advantages of being different in comedy. And that I had a lot of work because of that, because I was so different. And trying to fit in was just not an option because it was just too, it was too jarring for the audience to see me anyway. Hmm. So I had to sort of kind of convince them that it was going to be okay. In comedy, the most important thing to do is to make the audience feel like they're in good hands. And sort of trying to make them trust you when you're not even really old enough to be their babysitter. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. What about what about on the business side of things off stage? right? Were there things you had to do there that, I mean, because in, in the professional world, that's something Sharon and I face, a lot of our audience face, is the adversity that happens not when you're interviewing, not when you're on stage, not when you're in the moment, in the spotlight but it's all the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of things, but I was able to get through, okay, I've had some difficult professional relationships with management. Now things are really great, Mm -hmm. but 
in the past, there have been difficult relationships. And because when you're young, you really trust wholeheartedly that the business is going to be fine and that you're going to be fine and that you just have to make it. But the thing is, is that there's people that prey on you. There's people that are unscrupulous. There's people that steal, that cheat, that are very, I mean, it can be really vicious. So I think that you really need to learn. Fortunately, I wasn't like a child star. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I didn't Mm -hmm. have to necessarily grow up, but I was pretty young. So I did have to endure some of that, but I was able to come out of it pretty unscathed, which is great. Yeah. I mean, people are going to be assholes and racist. It's not, they're not mutually exclusive. Of course, of course. But it's also like when they see talent, the thing about it is like talent in a lot of ways is so rare. And especially in comedy, it's such a weird art form that's such a, it's like, there's a lot of people who prey on that. And so that's hard, but at the same time, you have something that people want. So that's a, it's a good sign, I guess, but it can be really scary. Was it interesting for you to have to navigate that, especially, I mean, you weren't a child star, but you were younger and your parents being immigrants kind of had no background in the business, right? They didn't understand any of it. Yeah, they didn't know. And I couldn't really rely on anybody. Fortunately, I had pretty good legal advice. People who had good reputations legally, I had good legal advice all the way through, which is sometimes very expensive and sometimes... (laughs) I've heard though, pay for the lawyers and the accountants early on, at least as an entrepreneur. That's the secret to success, huh? Get a good lawyer. Always have a good lawyer. Yeah, the accounting has been incredible. That's been great. That's still kind of one (laughs) part of it that I did make really good decisions financially. Yeah. But other than that, it's been pretty rough. But right now I've for the last 10 years, I've had a really good situation, but it's, it's definitely, it took a lot of work to get there. And now a very special message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, now streaming Only on Hulu. Hey, Roman, guess what? Um, You finally watched Warrior? Not yet. Not yet. I've got better news than that. We were nominated for Podcast of the Year. Get out of here. Yeah. No one listens to this. (laughs) Apparently they do. And we were nominated for the Lion Awards, which is the first ever charity People's Choice Awards show to celebrate Asian voices. And this year, they are not only giving five podcasters a chance to get into the final round to be able to make it to the podcast of the year, but they're also raising $50,000 for Hate is a Virus as a charity. 
wow, so that's significantly more meaningful than any award. So you should go check out thelionawards.com. And maybe when you're done voting for us and even learning about some pretty awesome other podcasts as well. But you should totally vote for us, I guess, right? Is that what I'm yeah. supposed to be asking these people yeah. to do? Yeah, I think the official thing to tell people is between now and May 17th, which is the voting period, you can go to thelionawards.com to vote for Modern Minorities. That's our podcast. And as we know, your favorite podcast. My um, favorite podcast. No, my I favorite podcast is Quarantine <laughs> Topics. <laughs> You're such a traitor. Anyway, the way it's going to work is they are collecting people's choice votes for the next week and a half. And then a celebrity panel of judges will be reviewing the ones that come to the top. And the winners will be announced on May 21st to the 23rd on Twitch. So you'll have Man, to- Man, only the cool kids are on Twitch. That's like way cooler than Clubhouse. I do feel like that's a little too cool for us, but we would love to have your vote. So the lionawards.com between now and May 17th, please cast your vote for Modern Minorities and we'll find out if we win on May 21st. And we might do something crazy if we win, right? Well, we'll definitely donate to hate as a virus, but we might do something crazy as well. We'll think about it. All right. The lionawards.com. Go vote for Modern Minorities, not Quarantine Comics, which wasn't even nominated. It was like Rob. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> and now back to our show. So Margaret, I want to pivot a little bit to your podcast. So I discovered it a while back and came back into it when I was prepping for another episode with author Mira Jacob. And I discovered she was on your podcast. I was like, oh, I'm already a fan of Margaret's show. And the first, call it, year or two of the show was that, just Margaret talking to interesting people and being Margaret. And a month ago or a couple months ago at the time of this airing, you pivoted the show completely. Can you mm-hmm. not just talk about the pivot that you made, but more about why? We have a similar title, Mortal Minority, <laughs> which it's a segment It's a Mortal Kombat show. fan podcast. Yes. It's, a, it's definitely fan. is. I have to say, it's a very cool title. When I saw that, I was yeah. like, oh, wow. Like, why yeah. didn't we think of that? Yeah, like, why did we go with modern minorities? We could have been mortal minorities. Well, it's the same thing. Yeah. The modern take on hate crimes and then a historical look at them because to show that hate crimes are cyclical and- we had it was a segment on the show that I would do in the first season, but this new season really is focusing on these modern hate crimes against Asian Americans and then juxtaposing them to historical ones to show that history repeats that we kind of endure the same thing over and over. And it's this constant reminder that we're considered foreign, that we're considered other, that we're never quite matched to other Americans. And it's a very odd place to be. So, and it's been kind of really intense because there's so much that I didn't know about historically in terms of after the gold rush and how Chinese, all of the Chinese people who came here had to deal with so much hatred and that there was so many people that were killed and mass lynchings and things that aren't talked about history books at all. We don't have any sort of Asian American history in any capacity in schools and nothing about black history. We know very little about any of our history, really. There's a terrible saying. It's a saying that I used to just think of as an American. It's called history is written by the winners. But through the lens of what you just said, it's look, all three of us have done fine. We're doing fine. But there are these things that our society is swept under the rug that even people like us don't fully know about sometimes. And because history is written by the winners. And to say that indicates there are losers on the flip side of the American coin. But they're all contributors. It doesn't matter who wins or who loses, but our contribution has been totally erased, which isn't 
fair either. I mean, the fact that Asian American history is not really taught or I am such very much an Asian American, like very identified. And I didn't know most of the stuff. So it goes very deep. And so then there's a couple of things that I also wanted to examine that I think are important. There's an episode that I'm prepping for right now, which is John Chow, who was the missionary who was killed on Sentinel Island when he tried to go in. And to me, it's kind of, I wonder to what lengths biracial people want to go to be seen. And it's like that thing of trying to figure out who we are through the lens of the world and society and trying to make a mark. And I wonder if that's what his journey was about. It's, I want to go convert this island of people who've never seen anybody and how much his racial identity affected his journey. So there's a lot of things that I'm like going, because I got so bogged down with Chinese people being killed by (laughs) American workers in the West in the 1800s that I just was like, I got to just step away. So we do Vincent Chin, we do the Chinatown Massacre of 1871, we do so many of these heinous things. And also crimes committed by Asian Americans as well, like Sun Jiaodu killing Latasha Harlins in South Central Los Angeles is one of the things that set off the LA riots. So there's a lot of really deep things to get into. Yeah. Where are you finding a lot of this information? Because it isn't written down. It's not It's not available for mass consumption. Oh, it's so much deep PBS, local PBS. Yeah. (laughs) Wyoming public television replayed on, uploaded onto YouTube. (laughs) I had to get premium YouTube because I can't watch any more ads. (laughs) It's like when you go super deep into Wyoming public television or Idaho public television, a lot of American masters, a lot of. Ken Burns style, but not Ken Burns legit. What I love about the era we're in, I'm working on a documentary project right now, is the barriers to entry to go do this and find this out and then present it are so low. The flip side of it is because the barriers are so low, there's so much. So how do you make sure it rises to the top? And that's why I love what you're doing because, and this is good to my next kind of framing of a question is, I think when you do it, people are like, oh, wow, Margaret Cho's not just telling jokes. She's talking about some serious stuff, and I'm going to listen. I guess, have you faced any of the call it the Colin Kaepernick effect, the stay in your lane, comedy lady, don't talk about this stuff? I don't think so, because there is so much in my work that's about racism that really goes into this area that it's really, it is my lane. There's a lot of lanes there that I can go into. It's also a place that's where we're really unheard. And our voices and our stories are are not told. And so I think it's really important. And I would like more people to know about these things and learn about these things. And so I feel like there's definitely a sense of a need for it, but it, I, I haven't had any pushback yet. Yeah. On one of your episodes, I think it was the first one in the season, Mortal Minority, with Helen Hong. And something you guys were talking about was parents, because you always start and you talk about a current thing that a current shitty thing that has happened, right? And I believe it was Helen's father who was father, assaulted yes. in a grocery store. Yeah. And never mind the the shittiness of that story, but what he did after he chose not to do anything. And you guys, there's something she said, it was like, well, their generation, why they deal with it versus because they feel like they still don't 
belong here versus our generation. It's like, no, we're fuck it. We're here. Get off my lawn. (laughs) Right. Well, it's like the ownership of identity and ownership of Americanness and with the Karen complex of the need to speak to the manager. Hmm. (laughs) Our parents don't really have that because they don't feel like they have the authority. So there's not that sort of Americanness of that authority because they still feel like immigrants. And also, I do kind of feel like that's why our parents are so old. My parents are 85, both, and her her parents are like around the same age. So they're they're able to kind oh, of oh because like, they're living longer because of how they process the stress. Uh, yeah, they process it because it's like we don't own this. We don't own any of this. We don't have responsibility over this. Live and so, live and let live. I think that's kind of, that's really helped them, but it also has hurt us in that we haven't invested that authority in the Americanness that we should have. Well, I, I do think in East Asian society, there's the concept of face and you guys talk about that, right? It's like, keep your head down, do the thing. And that's contributed to yeah. the model minority myth versus South Asian culture. We're all get in your face, but there's still the assimilation. Yeah. Like my mom to this day will still, in light of everything happening, she's like, kind of keep your head down. Yeah. Don't wear a punk rock t-shirt when you go to the airport. Post 9-11, I was I clean shaven also, and the nicest young man you will ever meet, right? I think it also has to do with maybe their own perception of government. I know as someone who is Chinese American, whenever I've gone back to mainland China, if we're in public, my family will not say anything negative about anything. If anyone in a uniform walks by, we stand up straighter. It doesn't matter if we're just literally shopping at a store. There's an interesting dynamic between authority from a government or like a political perspective and then someone's identity with their participation in that. And I noticed that for my own grandparents that were immigrants, they never participated. I mean, until the day he died, my grandfather who immigrated here when he was 14 was afraid that the government would somehow discover that he came over on fake papers. And he was living in the country for over 80 years. Yeah. And it's that fear and that kind of tension, I think, that contributes to the the non-participation in either telling the right stories or making a change for, for things that are happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the PTSD from the places of origin. Also the government is different. Society's different from where they're coming from. I mean, that's really kind of a lot of the experience of being in Korea, the wars, we can't even imagine the pain that they endured. So it's like, Maybe racism and keeping face, saving face, maybe it's worth it for them because it's like way better than what they come from. Well, it's a short, it's balancing the short and the long term. To your point of it, it's done a long term disservice that we continue to reconcile with right now. Mm-hmm. I guess, but something else you said in that interview is like, okay, but now we're at the breaking point. Well, like literally, even, even our parents are like, WTF. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. What's been your interaction with the older? Because you're a known entity not just to our generation, but to the older generation. They also saw you with Christy Yamaguchi. Yeah. What's been their change in perception? <laughs> and Michael Chang, favorite tennis player, right? But what's been the change in the older generation's perception? Because you have been, unlike Michael Chang and Christy Yamaguchi, you were more of an outsider in the things right. you said, the things you because you were a comic. So what's been the change in perception of the older generation? Call it 20 years ago. How did they feel about Margaret Cho? And now, how did they feel about you and what you're doing? Oh, now they're really excited. I mean... I think in the 20 years ago, they were really scared. 
<laughs> don't listen to that Margaret Cho. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. But now it's like, oh, they're so grateful because I've actually crossed over into the older generation. So that's really empowering. And one of the things that Asian Americans sort of retain is the respect for the elder. And that's really kind of come into being. So that's really good. I feel really great about that. But at the same time, I think that currently, like the older generation is really at risk too. So they need like these stronger voices to hang on to. So there's a good, I mean, there, there's a good thing. There's a good opportunity to speak up about it and defend them. Well, it's almost like our duty to your older. point. They're at risk. Like yeah. a lot of the attacks are happening on older people and it right. pisses yeah. me off. Terrible. And it's like, it's, it's up to us to, I don't know push back on their behalf almost. It's really scary. It is really, I mean, it seems to escalate too. It seems to get worse and worse every day. And there's either it's been happening and there's just more coverage of it or more people are reporting it. Maybe that could be it too. I think it's been happening. We talked about that as well. And I think our conclusion was, I think like we've agreed that it's probably been happening and it's, it's almost like a news cycle thing, which is sad in some ways. But it's brought to light the fact that this does exist. It does exist, yeah. I mean, the silver shitty lining of this pandemic, and I think about this with BLM and George Floyd, if we weren't in a pandemic on a down news cycle where there was nothing else to do but sit at home and there was no sports coverage, there was no celebrity gossip news, it's even there were no new Marvel movies, right? And that happened in a moment when we were all stuck to our screens. And I think the same thing with Atlanta. We've been, I mean... AAPI violence has been something that's been being talked about during the pandemic in the Trump era, but it didn't catch fire. People are like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Even Sharon like messaged me some stuff like, oh, should we be talking about this? Like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Are we getting on the bandwagon? But something caught. And that's the silver lining of this terrible moment that we're living in. But maybe we needed it. I think so. And I think it's more about whether or not we're going to be a part of American society for reals. It's like, Okay, we're here for reals now. It's just the showing up of Asian American faces at the Oscars or Asian people winning at the Oscars. Yunya Jung and, and Chloe Zhao. It's like Nomad Land, all the stuff. It's happening. It's happening. But what's interesting is I think in the media, I like to use the actor from Walking Dead and Steven Yen. I, I love to talk about him because his breakout role was just a dude who happened to be Asian on the zombie show. Mm-hmm. And then he went in Minari. He's now and something we're going to be talking about later, actually, on the show. But he went on to tell a very deep Asian American story. And I think yeah. the Asian American, something you said as well in another episode was, look, I personally don't, but kudos to people who like and who made Crazy Rich Asians and Bling Empire. But they almost do a disservice to the stereotype and the myth versus the real, raw, authentic Rami, never have I ever, Minari kind of Asian American experience. I think people need to hear that. The the story of your parents with the bookstore, with Harvey Milk, that's more real than some of the model portrayals that we're seeing in media. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think that the reasons why Bling Empire and Crazy Rich Asians are so popular, which I love those movies and <laughs> TV show. I think they're great. But I think that they also hint at pulling away from the divisive nationality game where pitted against each other because of the authenticity of our nationalities mixing. But when we're the super rich, all those divides go away. So the super rich 
don't have to judge whether somebody's Chinese and Korean or whether somebody's Japanese and Chinese. It's the quality of your handbag. It's the quality yeah, of your handbag. Right. The real American experience. You pull out the national identity because with wealth comes a kind of agency where you can mix with anybody. And so there is a kind of truth in that, which gets to the heart of the matter, because I think our identities as nationalities carry over from the old country so much that you do need to approach it in a different way. Like Singapore is a perfect example where you see everybody crossing over because it is like the crossroads of Asia. It's everybody. It's it's Indians. It's Pakistanis. Yeah, but, but, it's like... <laughs> but I, I lived there for a Chinese, year. It's, it's, no, I lived there it's for... It's hot. <laughs> uh, no, I lived there for a year. It's hot as hell. It's on the equator. But my Chinese American wife, who's then my girlfriend, we lived there together for a year. And people actually looked at us funny because I went there thinking, oh, everyone mixes. It's a melting pot. And it was it was 80s Alabama lunch table. Super. You go to the food court, Chinese people sitting at one table, Indian people sitting at another table. Again, mm-hmm. Access to amazing Indian food, amazing Chinese really food. Really good. <laughs> but the food was the best part. But it was a bit of a segregated society. And I asked some of my, I had Indian expat friends who came from India. I had native Indian Singaporean friends who were born there. And they're like, yeah, we just, we meet up at school together, but that's about it. But Singapore is such an interesting, it's an interesting experiment to continue to yeah. watch. I guess because whenever I go, it's like for short, short periods of time. Also, it's too hot for me, but I love that <laughs> Hainan chicken. You can't oh, really get it anywhere. You can't really make it. I mean, it's so good. Watermelon just, juice. That was my, that uh, was my jam Everything there. is so good. But I guess I didn't experience Singapore in that way. So I've only been there for short periods of time and usually in very mixed company. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The stereotype in my mind when I think of Singapore is I do think crazy rich. <laughs> it's pretty so it's accurate. Like, yeah. When you guys say that, I'm like, yep, the fast cars, the private jet. Yeah, look, we were the, the poor people in Singapore bags. when we were there, to be clear. <laughs> or like, you know what's really rich, I think, is Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. Mm, yeah. KL. Super. It's even richer than Singapore, I think. Yeah. But interestingly enough, also in Malaysia, we're getting really Fareed Zakaria here, but it's an Islamic country. But the reason Singapore exists is they broke away from Malaysia because they were more Chinese in the population because mm. the Chinese, ethnic Chinese were being discriminated against in Malaysia by the ethnic Malays. But it's funny uh, to come back to how history is taught. My daughter, she's five in a daycare and they've been doing, call it global month or whatever. And one week they studied Australia and another week they studied Asia. And I'm like, really? Like it's a whole country. Yeah, that's a whole country. <laughs> There's like India. And so for show for Australia for show and tell, it was like, yeah, we got a boomerang that I bought when I went to Australia. Here's my boomerang, honey. But for Asia, it's like, is it a Jaruma from Japan? Is it some Rajasthani dolls from your grand? Is it this? Right. Is it- you can't, it's the same thing with Africa. Right. It's a big it's, it's a so continent. many countries. Yeah, so continent. many countries. I mean, Australia is like it's physically large, but there's like nobody in the middle. The city of Boston. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's like so. Yeah. And it's also, it's actually like so many people we don't know because of the indigenous people. I kind of like to hate on Australia. I kind of like to hate on Australia because they're living the good life in the pandemic world right now. So good. (laughs) So I guess, Margaret, what has you most excited or honestly the opposite of excited, the most trepidatious kind of of what's what's going on in the world right now? I just want to see how we come back to society with what we know about racism and what we know about ourselves. I want to see what happens. I don't really have an opinion. 
about it. I can't decide. I hope it's better. But we it sort of remains to be seen because we haven't actually physically been together for a year. Right. right. Are you and optimistic, cautiously optimistic or cautiously pessimistic? I don't, I don't think I have any sort of opinion about what it's going to be like. I have I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess. Okay. Okay. But you're you're curious. Hopeful. You're I'm curious. curious. Observe. But I'm definitely on my guard and I think that it's it's really it's going to be interesting to see. I'm hopeful for show business. I think that especially after the Oscars, although I was disappointed that they picked Anthony Hopkins, which is like, of course, he's a great <laughs> yeah. actor, but that's so weird to me. It's the Joe Biden choice. It's the that safe was, choice. Yeah, that was my reaction, too. I Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was on, I was I on mean, Team Riz. I was on Team Riz, to be clear. I know. I love, yeah, Riz, Ahmed, and Stephen and Chadwick. I mean, you would yeah. think yeah, that. That, that, that yeah. one seemed like. I really thought it would be Chadwick. I mean. I really thought it would be Chadwick. But okay, just to like say, this is going to sound terrible, but you can't pull a Heath Ledger every year, can't you? Because I didn't see this performance specifically, but I read something. It's like, he's had amazing performances. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I thought it was weird. I mean, I thought that the Academy is still, it can surprise you every time. I think they need to... I don't know enough about the Academy and I will never interact with them. So, um, but maybe you have to, ch- is, is it selection bias? Do you need to change the makeup of the, of the Academy? I don't know. I don't know. I would love to see that like from a DEI perspective, diversity, equity, inclusion, I would to understand the system. Never mind. Oh, did we nominate a bunch of BIPOC right. movies and, and artists, but who are the people making the decision? Are they representative of America? Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea because if you look at the makeup of show business, it's just who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Right. So Margaret, how would you compare yourself between who you are today and who you were back then as a little girl? What are some things about you that are out of the same or some things that are completely different? I'm still really optimistic. I'm still really idealistic and I'm still really a dreamer and a doer. But I'm not as, I don't know, I can, I can definitely be cynical too. So I think I'm actually pretty much the same, although I've seen some bad stuff. You've got better <laughs> tattoos now than you did. I do. You have really I have a lot of tattoos. them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, Margaret, I would love to talk with you for a lot longer, but we're almost out of time. I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? Is Margaret ready for speed round? Margaret Cho, I think you're ready for speed round. All right. That was a trick question. No one's really ever ready for speed round. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Margaret, what's something about you that people don't expect? That I have 10 litter boxes <laughs> for two cats. Okay. I was going to ask what the ratio was. <laughs> That's it's a lot really... of litter box boxes for two cats. Is it? Well, there's three robotic style? ones. <laughs> they make robotic, robotic litter boxes now? Yeah. Oh there's, three, uh, there's three robotic ones, and then there's two outdoor ones there's the rest of them are in every room because i wasn't sure where they were gonna go right <laughs> and i also hate cleaning them so <laughs> use thankfully they usually use little robots so, robots so i don't have to clean them but sometimes they'll use the outliers so so it's not like they have their favorite spot each cat sometimes certain litter boxes get really trendy and there's a line <laughs> outside just like certain beds get really trendy 
And there's a line. Mar- Margaret, this, this, this sounds like a first. This, you were. were uh, this left. is a first world problem. Yeah. This is a first. World I know it's such a first world problem. But the, my cats are first world cats. So they they'll be in a line outside of one of the litter boxes, and then sometimes they'll get in together, and it's like a whole thing. There's one litter robot that's right across from my toilet. So sometimes we'll get in and look at each other while we're both going. Nice. And that's really special. That's bonding. Yeah. Dude, it's really bonding. We finally got a Roomba, and my daughter named it. So have you named your litter robots? No. No, okay. I okay. should, but I should get a Roomba too because there's a lot of litter scatter everywhere. Oh, I, I would th- do away with the litter boxes and just buy like 10 Roombas and have like a fleet of robots. That's, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think you guys should name your Roombas or your robots butler names. Yes, Jeeves. What Jeeves. I love is my daughter, this is classic dude. I was like, what are we going to call him? And she's like, our Roomba's not a he, it's it's a girl. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, right. you're right. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. Okay, Margaret. What is a book, movie, or television show that you would recommend with characters that you can relate to that you would recommend? Oh, gosh. Right now, I'm watching The Serpent on Netflix, which is great. And it's all about Charles Sabraj, who is an Indian-Vietnamese serial killer. So it's like crazy 70s backpacker. Bangkok and Kashmir and Paris and oh my god it's great it's so great and the fashion the photography everything is super cool is it a series or is it a movie it's a it's a limited series a limited series and I think it's I think it's amazing and it's a really interesting story that I think is really good also my mister which was my favorite K-drama of the last year. <laughs> I'm like deep into K-dramas. All I really want. So it's weird for me to watch something that's not a K-drama and also be so into it. But The Serpent is really good. I mean, between the BTS McDonald's meal and oh my God. everything, <laughs> I feel like Korean Americans are, ha- Korean culture is having its moment in America. And it sucks that you found out you're Chinese. I know. <laughs> you could be writing that way, Margaret. You can still be a Chinese BTS army. We still need Chinese army members in BTS's army. So I'm definitely <laughs> in the BTS army still, five-star general. In the That's BTS really army. the way to President Xi's heart is. <laughs> it is. Well, my bias is Jimin. <laughs> Although I do love B. And RM. Nobody's bias is RM, and I, I love RM. So Pre-pandemic, I used to work in K-Town, and I would walk by, I guess it was like 34th, and the amount of K-pop star cardboard cutouts that I've oh, been yeah. in pictures with oh, yeah. is Every, immense. Everywhere. I love, I love it. Yeah, I love, yes, yeah, 34th and 35th is K-Town. Yeah. yeah. So what's your favorite mom dish? Oh, sundubu. Also, Aljige. Aljige is like kind of tough because it's kind of fermented uh, pollock roe, which is, it's like mentaiko in Japanese, but it's with tofu and daikon in dashi stock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's funky. So it just it sounds makes funky. your house smell like it's like <laughs> dead body. If it, if it doesn't make your house smell, it's not worth eating. Let's be clear. Everything in my house smells, but it's very funky. Nice. What is your least favorite food? Sundae, which is a blood sausage, Korean blood sausage. I don't like it, but I don't like blood sausage in general, except I do like haggis, which is that yeah. it's kind of Irish. It's like a sheep stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. It's nasty. It's some organ 
stuff. All right, but I want to. I want to. I've been challenging people on this one question because everyone gives super obvious. Of course, no one would ever like that for at least. But what's the food that you have like veto rights on? If you're at a restaurant or dinner and it shows up on your plate, so you're like, nah, mine's cantaloupe. I can get out of eating cantaloupe any day because it's oh. terrible. Oh yeah, yeah. It can be weird. Cantaloupe is weird. I like it, but it can be weird. Melons in general are kind of weird. All right, They're good. Yeah. But good, but also can be weird. They get gooey fast. That's what I don't love. Yeah. yeah. It can be good or really bad. Calamari and octopus, any kind of cephalopod. Okay. Because I'm only allergic to a small percentage of them. And it's, I think it has to do with the iodine content. So I, I like it, but I can die. <laughs> so I, I'm not I'll sure. Because <laughs> it can actually cause anaphylaxis if it's the right kind and sometimes it can happen with different shellfish, but mostly with cephalopods. There is a great, I think it was NPR, so This American Life or Radiolab episode about calamari and how most American calamari does not come from cephalopods. It comes from something else that is very what? gross. Like what? You'll have to look it up. I'm not even going to. Not even gonna let you know. So oh, more no. more reason to just stay away from calamari. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Scary. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh gosh. Oh, Kamala Harris. Yeah. I love her. I love her. Oh. I got to talk to her on Zoom when I was campaigning for her in November, or actually I was October. She's so rad. Get her, I'm onto, so, get her onto Mortal Mi- Minority. I would love. You could totally do it. Do you it. Totally do it. Do it. Amazing. We'll help you yeah. write the pitch. We'll do okay. it with you. She's awesome. <laughs> I totally bought my daughter for Christmas a Kamala Harris action figure. So that's a so thing. Cool. She's yeah. so cool. She's so cool. She's so cool. I love her. So, Margaret, last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? It means an outlook on the future of us with the history in our rear view. Nice. That's a really, I like, I like playing with the metaphor of the rear view mirror. That's really good. Yeah. Cause you're not turned around. You're not distracted, but you're paying. You gotta, keep your, you gotta keep your eye on it. Yeah, for sure. Well, as the great poet Meatloaf once said, objects in the rear view mirror may appear closer are than closer they are. Than, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Margaret, first, not only just thank you for coming on and sharing kind of your taking your story, but you continue to reinvent yourself with the work that you're doing. And it's honestly just as important now as it's ever been. So thank you for just doing the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank you for being an inspiration and such a great role model as well. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. I think it comes down to intersectional identities and how complex it is. And not just all the different facets that make us up with the different cultures, but the intersections that they occur in. Even just the specific Asian identities like Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian, and how that impacts the way they carry themselves within the queer community is an area that we definitely need a lot of work in. Even just the gay community is very white dominant. 
dominated due to cultural trends where we have a lot of queer liberation happening in more Western countries and our Asian countries are a little bit behind, we end up over-indexing on white perspectives and therefore also this erasure of the nuances around respect for our elders, filial piety, that we are still struggling with figuring out how do we find space for that. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.